0: Hey, can we pray the Lord's Prayer together this morning? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. Amen. And uh, as we've said every week in this series, as we go through the Lord's Prayer together, we'll share next week, finally next week, you know, some of you quote the last line of the Lord's Prayer and some of you don't. Uh, We'll share why we haven't, but we'll talk about that next week. It's going to be awesome as we finish up the Lord's Prayer. There are like, there's like low level compliments and higher level compliments. Like lower level compliments would be like, I saw Bonnie this morning. I was like, Bonnie, I like your hat. Or a next low-level compliment would be like, Ed, that was awesome that you got my son and your son up there to do that devotion. That was probably going to be the most meaningful thing the thing we'll take away today. Nobody will remember the sermon. They'll remember like what the kids talk about. That'll be great. Another low-level compliment would be like, so they're replacing these windows over here you see the wood in the windows it won't always be that way they're replacing them to 1791 standards and so if you didn't notice it's a little chilly in here in the winter i want to thank nick for getting here at 7 a.m and turning the heat on this morning uh be mindful as we until they until you see glass where there is currently plywood bring multiple layers scarves mittens on sunday and if you need to you know like take a layer off that's great but Nick thank you for getting here this morning and eating a donut right now and running video that's awesome um, then there's higher level compliments though like right like uh, you look at some like a family member and you say mom dad who thank you I can't even comprehend the loads that you lifted off of me in my life to get me where I am today or I love you. I'm a better person because you are my friend or you are my spouse or you are, you know, my coworker or neighbor or whatever. I think one of the, the best higher level compliments, because we don't do it very well, we live in a a culture where we say, I'm sorry, really quickly, almost dismissively sometimes. And even sometimes we even do like the, I'm sorry, but we turn it on the other person. Like, I'm so sorry that you are so stupid that you couldn't understand what I was trying to get to you with that. Right? Like that's what, that's how we apologize in this day and age. Like, I'm sorry that my, you know, we hear it in culture all the time. Like, I'm sorry that my criminality or my words, if, may, if they may have offended you. Well, basically you're just saying, grow some thicker skin, not that you're actually sorry you said something wrong, right? So one of the most powerful in our culture, higher level phrases that we don't get to very often is, I forgive you, and will you forgive me? In our house, we even have a rule, Natalie and I, we've been married 17 and a half years. We uh, learned uh, early on that I'm sorry doesn't cancel the, it doesn't count, it doesn't cancel the problem for the offender or the offended. (laughs) Right. For the offender, if you just or for the offended, if you just say, I'm sorry, well, then it's like, well, did you even mean it? Like you didn't even give me a chance to reconcile that thing. And for the and for the offender, sometimes when you just say, I'm sorry, you can sit there at the dinner table later on and go, well, do we really close that out? Like, did we reconcile that problem that we had right there? And so, I'm sorry is a cheap, cheap substitute for real forgiveness. What happens in our marriage and what happens in our friendships, I've had to do this with many of you over the last five years, uh, is say, I was wrong when I... Will you please forgive me? And that closes out the account. You know what I mean? Like, when we... And, and sometimes, to be full disclosure—not in the notes—but this is important to know, like how rela- how I think biblical relationships work. We learn this from other people. There have been times in our marriage where I've said, "Yes, I forgive you," or Natalie more often than me, like has said, "Yes, I forgive you." There's been other times where, like, I will forgive you, but I'm not there at this moment. So you're gonna have to give me a couple of hours to get to that. Like now, what's not except Rochelle giving an amen praise the Lord. Amen. That's right. Like what is not acceptable. And we've counseled some couples and some people through this. It's not acceptable to say, I'll forgive you one day and never come back and close the account. That is actually unforgiveness. And that's a little bit of what we're going to talk about today. So if you've got a Bible, we're in the middle of the Lord's prayer. We're actually coming up on the end of the Lord's prayer in Matthew 6, We'll also put the verses up here. Also, just if you ever want it, need one for home, there's Bibles, uh, blue paperback uh, Bibles out there. There's small print where you got to have like the eye of a hawk to see the print on that. Uh, some of our folks have told me, but there's large print ones back there too. And then there's even larger print ones back there for uh, for those who need it. But we're going through the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6. Let me read to you what Jesus is, um, the full context of what he's talking about regarding prayer Um, In his sermon on the mount he says this Now, when you pray don't be like the hypocrites Don't be like the actors the people who are sort of moral and religious actors For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others Truly I say to you you've they've received their reward But when you pray go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret And your father who sees in secret will reward you It's not that we don't ask people to pray up here. It's not that we don't pray sometimes in the public square or in public with friends. But Jesus is saying, don't ever let prayer be a performance. Continuing on, he says, and when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. In other words, he says, don't let prayer be repetitive to the point that it's mindless. Like, this was me praying in middle school on tests that I hadn't studied for. Like, I thought, oh, God, please help me pass this test. Oh, God, please help me. Lord Jesus, help me with Algebra 2. I cannot do it, Lord. Algebra 2, Lord. And I would just say it over and over. And I think God was probably like, dude, I'm trying to manage the universe. Like, one time, I'm good. Like, I hear you. Algebra 2, you didn't study enough. Math is hard. Like, I didn't have to mindlessly repeat it. Like, he couldn't hear me. And that's what Jesus is warning us against here and he says then he goes pray then like this verse 9 our father in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven we talked about that the first three weeks talking about God's character and God's identity he then says in verse 11 give us this day our daily bread he pivots to talking about God to now talking about us and our needs and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, before we get talking about forgiveness today, let's remember that Jesus is talking about forgiveness within the context of God's four. Uh, In this moment, God's four-part character. The first part is that God is corporate. He says, our Father. He's our God. So when we live in the most individualistic nation in history, it's easy to think of God as being mine, but not ours or yours. And so Jesus reminds us right off the bat when we pray, our. The second thing he says is that God's personal. He calls God Father, but that's even too heavy. The word that he's using when he talked about this is almost like the idea of like Papa our daddy, our father, our Abba, our daddy in heaven. So God is now corporate and personal. The idea that he's in heaven is the idea that he is powerful, even to the point that God is other. Like I don't walk in to God's presence casually or in a cavalier or presumptuous way. Our father in heaven, holy is your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven, that God is at the fourth part of his identity here is that God is king. God is king, that he is the ruler of the universe. And so when we say now, after that, now that we've made that fourfold confession, we say, give us today our daily bread, meet our needs, God, for the next 24 hours, and then give us the faith and the courage to, and the perseverance to ask you again the next day And the next day, and the next day, as much as I wish God would give me Costco-sized portions of daily bread, like he gives it to us daily. He meets our needs on a regular basis. And then we get to today's. uh, And we need to remember who God is and what he does before we say or as we say, forgive us our debts. Let me just say also that this is the only part of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus gives commentary on. It's so important that Jesus comes back at the end of it and says, For if you forgive your trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Jesus could have given commentary on give us today our daily bread. He didn't do it. Jesus could have given us more commentary on why God is Father or why God's name is holy or whatever, and he didn't do it. But he did choose to come back and give two more sentences here about why we need to forgive and be forgiven. And so really, as we look at this today, it could almost be two sermons. There's the forgive us our debts. That could be a sermon. And then as we forgive our debtors, that could be a sermon. And I could talk all day about it because of the trauma at times that I have lived through that required me to forgive and that many of you have lived through that demanded forgiveness so that you wouldn't be emotionally imprisoned and I could preach a long sermon about how I've had to be forgiven and sometimes that's even the more traumatic thing is sort of surrendering and saying God I need to be forgiven by you or Howard or Renee or Nick, I need to be forgiven by you. Barb, I need to be forgiven by you. That, those, both of those things could be a whole sermon, but we have to tie them in together. They're actually inseparable ideas. And so we're going to go and kind of do this like a two-act play today. The first act is going to be forgive us our debts. The second act will be as we forgive our debtors. Now, if you look at verse 12, Jesus says, he prays, teaches us to pray. As an example, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. If you look at verse 14, he says, forgive our trespasses and as we forgive those who trespass against us. So the first question I think we have to ask is, was it debts or trespasses? Which one is it? And the answer is, I think it's both. I think it's both. Now debts, when we think of our sin and other sins against us as debts, that's thinking about a moral problem in financial terms. It's thinking about a moral problem in financial terms so. I remember the first time when we were newlyweds, we were still living in our first house. Uh, I was working for a church and our credit card bill uh, came due and I knew we had bought some stuff, but I didn't realize how much stuff we had bought. And I don't know if this ever happened to anybody in here, but we opened that credit card bill and I was like, whoa. And I literally started to panic and we've joked about this so many times over the last 15, 16 years, like the little lunch bags that Nat would pack my lunch in with a sandwich and some chips and a cookie and an apple. Like I needed, I needed one of those at my, at my fingertips to like breathe into when I saw that minimum payment that we had to make, I was like, Jesus, what have we just done? Like we have got more financial debt at this moment than we have margin to get out of the debt on the minimum payment at this moment, God. When Jesus says forgive calls us to pray forgive us our debts he's talking about there's this moral obligation that's like a financial obligation that we can't pay that panicky feeling that I felt is the feeling that we ought to feel over our sin now about that same time amazingly it was probably within the same calendar year we had someone trespass against us here's what happened We took our car, our Ford Explorer, to the church, and I was a youth pastor, and we had to leave the car there, and we drove the church van, which was always an exercise in faith. We had to drive it 20 miles down the road to this event with teenagers, and we got back that night, and our car had been keyed. This is the first time anything like this ever happened to me. I was like, I'm a good Christian guy. I'm serving the Lord. How is somebody going to key my car? I didn't understand that. Someone, like when Jesus says, if you, you were to forgive someone's trespasses, he's talking about the idea of like morally overstepping the bounds or what I would almost call like a moral vandalism. Like if God has a property, like if God has property or a car or a house When Jesus says, ask God to forgive our trespasses, what he's saying is morally, we have keyed God's car. And we need the Lord to forgive our trespasses. That's what sin is. It's a financial moral debt that we can't pay. And it's a moral vandalism of something that belongs to God. And when someone sins against us, And we have to forgive. We need to understand that they have created a financial sort of metaphorically financial moral debt that they can't pay. And they have trespassed. They have morally vandalized our emotional property. Have you ever been morally vandalized by someone? Yeah. Have you ever been... And this is a little bit like... Have we... How many times, how often, what was the deepest way that you ever morally vandalized God's property? And Jesus is calling us to square those two things up. Sin is moral vandalism and financial debt that we can't afford to pay. There's only four ways that you can deal with it. There's only four ways you can deal with it: Christian, non-Christian. There's four ways that we deal with our financial debt and our moral vandalism. Way one is we just ignore it, but man, it's like the telltale heart. Remember that story? I think by Edgar Allan Poe about the just like the guys, just the dead body is screaming up from the floor, like that you he can hear the heartbeat. That's what sin will do if we try to ignore it. It still comes knocking. Still, you can't ignore it. The second thing we can do is we can try to justify it. This is kind of where we are as a culture. I think this is what we do the, the most. We say it's it's no big deal. I've said that to that person. It's no big deal. I don't understand why they think it's such a big deal. I'm not as bad as we justify ourselves by comparing us to someone as comparing ourselves to someone else, or we say uh, I was I, I was just I, I was you 're just understanding it wrong, this is my truth, this is my thing i didn 't violate my truth it 's no big deal. We try to justify it, but again, like the tell tell heart, like our our hearts tell us we 're wrong. The third thing we can do to try to deal with our debts is we can try to go at it alone by effort. This is like relationshipless religion. Like, I'm going to fix the debt that I have with God. I'm going to fix the debt I have with everyone else. These are the most tired people you will ever see in your life. These are the people that you'll go into a church service and look around. Like, the people who look like they're carrying the weight of a thousand pound load on their back and they fall asleep in church, they are falling asleep, but they're not resting. They're sleeping under the weight of a relationship religion that tries to take all the debts and square them up by effort with God and finally, the fourth, way, uh, the fourth way to deal with our debts is the gospel. It's the gospel. When Jesus says, when we pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, we're addressing God on a couple of ways that relate to the gospel, the good news. Way one, when we say that, we're, we're addressing God as judge. We're address, addressing God as our judge. Now, God is our judge, uh, which is terrifying to me. I don't know if that's terrifying a little bit to you, but that is a terrifying idea. Thompson, can I borrow you for a second? Can you come here? Yeah, come here real quick. quick minute. Here's the good news about God being our judge is if God is the judge, and I'm going to pick on Howard. Howard is the person in the courtroom, the person on trial, and God is the judge. Here's the good news about God being our judge when we have relationship with God in Christ. Here, Stand between me and Thank you. Actually, look at me. Turn around. Look at me. They're going to get it. All right. Here, let me get right here. Howard, can you see me? No, nope, don't move. Howard, can you see me? Okay, great. But you can see me. Right. All right. Now you can turn around and wave at Howard real quick. Oh, man, you're doing a great job. All right. You can go sit down because I can tell this is embarrassing enough for you. Thank you, Thompson. Here's what God does as judge. When God looks at us at salvation, he only sees Jesus. So when someone accuses us or when Satan accuses us and says, oh man, you're a terrible person, you're guilty, God as judge for the believer looks and he only sees Jesus. So when God looks at you, Christian, regardless of how guilty you may feel or the worst thing you've ever done, if you are in Christ, you've turned from your sin, trusted Jesus, been born again, you have a relationship with God that you did not deserve or earn, but you have it by the death and resurrection of Jesus. If you've done that, when God looks at you, regardless of how you feel, when the judge looks at you, he only sees his son who took the penalty for the debt. So we are justified. The word for that is justification, it's a legal word, and all it means is that in Christ, God has declared us not guilty he paid the debt. It would be like Howard owing me a thousand dollar debt. Every time I look at Howard, all I can see is the debt. What Jesus did, that would be Thompson, is Jesus stepped in, paid the debt before the judge, took the guilt. So now when Howard looks at God, all he sees is Jesus. And, And when God looks at Howard, all he sees is Jesus and the debt is paid. When the Bible says that Jesus is our mediator of a new covenant, it means that God was the judge and Jesus is the justifier. All of this, all the crimes, all the sins are forgiven. And here's what I need you to hear for those of you who struggle with guilt. All the sins are forgiven past. All the sins are forgiven present. And all the sins are forgiven future. There's not a sin you've ever committed that if you're a Christian that the blood of Jesus hasn't dealt with. And there's not a sin you're ever going to commit tomorrow that the blood of Jesus is not going to deal with. There have been times, being really honest, where you've wandered away, some of you. There have been times where I've wandered away. But there's been times where some of you wandered away, and as your pastor, I have entrusted you to the Lord, knowing that the judge and the justifier were going to draw you back in, because the gospel is that good of news. And so Jesus forgives our past, present, and future sins, which then leads to ask regarding the Lord's Prayer, then why do we need to ask for forgiveness? If it's already forgiven, why did Jesus say, well, forgive us our debts? If Jesus has already done it, why do I have to ask for it? It reminds me of a friend of mine who worked at a camp one summer and she was the worship leader and had a camp pastor. And they sat down at the table one day at camp and he just started eating. And it was in the South where, you know, when you sit at a table, you ask the blessing every time you sit down. And uh, and she goes, aren't you going to ask the blessing? Like, what are you doing? And he goes, oh, I'm good. A few years ago, I prayed that God would just go ahead and bless all my meals for the rest of my life. And now I'm set. Like, and he just started eating. Like, he literally never asked the blessing again. He's like, I figure God's got a good memory. It's all taken care of. I am good. It's that same question. If Jesus has forgiven me, Why do I need to ask? Because, and here's why. Because yes, God is judge, but God is also father. And at salvation, we don't just get a legal justification a not guilty verdict and the debt paid. We also get relationship. And when we say, forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors, we're remembering that um, salvation is not just justification, which is the legal term, Salvation is also sanctification or holifying, God making me holy, God making me more like Jesus. And so when I say, forgive me my debts, what I'm remembering is, I still have a debt against God and he still loves me. And part of me coming and getting to know the heart of the father is just coming and like being before him and confessing what I have done wrong. And as I do those things, God changes me by his spirit inside and out to know and be like Christ. That's gospel. That's good news. That's the Father. And that's us saying, Father, I have sinned. Forgive me my debts. He's already forgiven you, Christian. But what it does, it humbles you. It reminds you. It restores you. And it liberates you. Worst speeding ticket I ever got, I remember walking into the house with my mom and and being like, just just holding it up. And just being like, uh, just, it, humi- it humiliated me, it shamed me, I knew I'd let my mom down, and uh, and I remember the restoration and the depth of relationship that came after that. When we say, Father, I have sinned, please forgive my debts, he's already done it in Christ, but it restores us, and it restores relationship. Now, one question I know that some of you may anticipate or have is, what if I die without asking for forgiveness from the Father? Like, what if I sin? Some of you grew up in a tradition where you had to go and you had to confess those sins with some regularity to someone. And there might even, you might have even been raised to feel some anxiety about, what if I sin and I don't remember it and I don't confess it? Will God still hold it against me? Let me just remind you, for those of you, because you're like, I don't want to sin against the Father. I don't want to let him down. They remind you that he 's still also the judge, and he 's still also the justifier and even if you 've sinned and he and you 've forgotten it, he did not forget it, but he didn 't hold that over you. He took the punishment and the wrath for that out on his son at the cross, so whether you and I remember our sins or not, he has atoned for our sin in its totality and has forgiven us. For every bit of it, you are forgiven past, present, and future, even when you don't feel like it. And so as judge, God forgives. As Father God loves you, listen for his spirit to convict you and reveal sin and then repent of it. Let me, let me just anticipate one more question. You might even ask, does asking for forgiveness secure my forgiveness? Am I forgiven by asking? If Jesus told me, ask God to forgive your debts, the truth is, no, Christ secures our forgiveness, not our asking. Christ does all the heavy lifting, so then is it necessary to ask for it? Yes. Even though Christ has forgiven it, it's necessary. Every time we pray, but especially when the Spirit convicts us and busts us for our sin, we ought to say, Lord, will you forgive me? and let the spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit in you wash over you. And say, yes, you are forgiven. Walk in grace, go in grace. And that leads to the second part, part two. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now we live in a culture that cancels people. I don't know if any of you have ever been canceled. I know we do have a couple people in our church who have been canceled. Uh, it's funny to hear them talk about how it happened. Uh, I read this week, i, I Just because I was morbidly curious, uh, you know, I I wanted to find out who are some celebrities who have been canceled this year and what have they been canceled for. And some of them were really like, yeah, I see why that guy got canceled. That guy's a dirtbag. Some of them, you're like, they didn't know what they were doing. Like, they're just doing their thing. And we live in such an unforgiving, angry culture right now. Here's what cancel culture does. This is important. You say, what does this have to do with the Bible? cancel culture hangs on to the rage and the indignation and the sort of frustration and the unforgiveness, and it ends the relationship. When you see someone get canceled, what what is being said to them is the relationship is ended. I no longer recognize you. I unfollow you. I block you. I trash you on social media. I will... Pretend like you are the devil. The relationship ends, but the moral, the moral outrage doesn't end. People who have been canceled continue to be just pummeled, pummeled. I was talking with a friend yesterday about the Cosby Show, and like I know that Bill Cosby is now a pariah, but I also know that when I was a kid, like everybody wanted. Heathcliff Huxtable to be your dad like I learned a lot of good lessons about life from Heathcliff Huxtable and part of what's happened in the last few years is like that dude has been canceled the relationship ended but like it's been five years and you still talk to i still talk to people hear from people who act like it happened absolutely yesterday it's like oh man like What cancel culture does, it ends a relationship, but it does not end the outrage. Here's how the gospel is different than cancel culture. When Jesus talks about forgiving our debtors, Jesus isn't saying anything other than this. And if you write one thing down today, here it is. Forgiven people forgive. Forgiven people forgive. Forgiven people forgive. Like... Jesus has a parable where he talks about a man who had essentially a $10 million debt that a judge or a lender forgives. And then the guy walks out on the street and realizes that he's owed $100 and he loses his mind. And the judge hears about this and goes and throws the guy back into the debtor's prison. And he says, look, if you can't realize the enormity of a $10 million debt being canceled in such a way that you forgive a $100 debt. Then you need to get back in the prison, and he throws him in the prison. And the principle of that parable is that people who have been forgiven a tremendous debt by the judge and father are free, not com- not compelled in the sense of you better forgive or burn in hell. It's we are free. The Lord's forgiven me. I can forgive you. Forgiven people, forgive. Jesus isn't saying forgive or burn. Man's forgiveness doesn't cause God's forgiveness. That's religion. Jesus isn't saying here, regardless of how we might hear it, when I hear this, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, I tend to think that God's forgiveness of me hinges on my forgiveness of you. That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is actually saying is, because we have been forgiven so much by God, we are compelled and free and able to forgive the one who who we are indebted to. Self-righteousness says we have to earn God's forgiveness. God's forgiveness compels man's total legal forgiveness and progressive moral transformation. How? How many of you, by a slight show of hand, have a relationship in your life that you either currently are working to forgive someone or you've forgiven them in the past, but it kind of creeps back up at you by just a slight show of hand. Yeah, yeah, me too, me too. Some people got two hands up. People are like raising their legs. I I get it. There was a time in my life where there was one debt in particular that I hung on to just like that. And I want to tell you how you can, I want to give you, and this is not three simple steps. There is no three simple steps to this but I do think there's a process to begin to forgive. And for the Christian, for the one who's following Christ, here it is, one, look at the debt of your sin against God that every one of us have. Look at the debt of your sin against God. All the times that you sinned by committing a sin, all the times that you sinned by omitting to do the right thing, all the times that that you sinned against someone, all the times that you sinned against God, even because sin can be sticky, even some of the sins that you just kind of inherited because you were born to the mom and dad that you were born to. I've been a sinner since birth, since before birth, because you know what? The DNA of thousands of years of sinful human beings runs through my blood and through my genetic wiring. And so look at the debt of sin against God that we each have. Second way, Look at the weight of forgiveness in Christ. Look to the cross and look at the Son of God hanging there, carrying the weight of each one of them. If each one of us, if each of us had committed one sin, Jesus would have still died for each one of us. And yet at the cross, Jesus is carrying the weight of all of humanity, the totality of of every one of our sin, look at the weight of forgiveness in Christ and the fact that the cost is paid at the cross. And then third, look at the comparatively small debt of another sin and let go of it and release it. Or, at the very least, ask God to help you do so. There's some debts you can't forgive on your I'll be honest. Uh, the trauma of my relationship with my dad was a debt that I could not forgive. It was only Jesus who helped me forgive my debt. Only Jesus. There's gonna be some debts in your life and debts in your heart and some areas that you are not going to be emotionally, spiritually, physically capable of forgiving. People get violated because people are sinners. And there are ways that we violate other people physically, spiritually, and emotionally. And the weight of that is too heavy for any human being, any mere mortal, to forgive. And so there are going to be some times when we say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And Lord, I'm not ready to forgive that debtor. And if you will help me, I will let go of it. But I'm going to need you to help me let go of it. I want to tell you one of my favorite life quotes is this. Unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting your enemy to die. Unforgiveness is you like that, didn't you? That's pretty good one, Rochelle. Unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting your enemy to die. For them and for yourself, you need to let it go. I want to encourage you. You may need to get accountability. You may need to go to counseling. I've spent a lot of money in counseling dealing with a lot of stuff. Most of it was my fault. Some of it was because of people sinning against me. I had to let go of it. You don't live as a full human being as God intended when you hang on to that stuff. By all means necessary for them and yourself, get whatever help it takes to let go and forgive and be forgiven. If God will forgive us, Then he can or will forgive our worst enemy. I don't know who sinned against you the worst, but if God can forgive you, he can forgive her or him, your biggest offender. If God will forgive your worst enemy, your biggest offender, and the Spirit of God lives in you, then you can and you must forgive that person. For your sanity, and your spiritual wholeness. You have to, we have to deal with the unforgiveness that we, that the enemy would love for us to hang on to. Now, let me say, that doesn't mean you forget it. The Bible never calls us to forgive and forget. It calls us to forgive. Um, it doesn't call us to forget. You have to have appropriate boundaries. But generally, generally speaking, the gospel is the opposite of cancel culture. If cancel culture ends relationship but hangs on to rage, what the gospel does is it ends the rage and the unforgiveness and the indignation and it hangs on to the relationship. And thank God, because we would get no relationship with God if he canceled us. What cancel culture does, the gospel does the opposite. Now know, somebody may say, "I don't know how to share the gospel." How many of you, if I said, "All right, we're going to go out of here today, and we're going to be as, we're going to do the craziest thing ever," and you, we're going to come back here at four o'clock, and everybody needs to have shared the gospel with one person, either a stranger or someone you know. How many of you would be like, "Dude, I don't even know where to begin with that." It's 2021. It's Boston. I don't want to do that. That scares me to death. Yeah, okay, a couple of honest people. My wife was like, yeah, check, me, yes, absolutely, right. Listen, in 2021, for those who don't know how to share the gospel, one way in a cancel culture in Boston in this day and age is to practice forgiveness. If you will practice forgiveness, that may be your best witness. If you will ask someone to forgive you when you wronged them, that may be the most powerful witness you have in this community. The ability to forgive and ask forgiveness may be our strongest witness that we can have. Let me read you a quick story. One of the most, there aren't many books in my life that I've read and cried like a baby as I read it, um, but The Hiding Place by Corrie ten Boom uh, is one of those books. Uh, Cory ten Boom was a Christian from Holland uh, who uh, she and her family harbored uh, Dutch Jews during the Holocaust and she and her family were subsequently arrested uh, shipped off to various concentration camps and she and her sister were at Ravensbrück and at Ravensbrück her sister ended up becoming so um, violated emaciated and tortured that she ended up dying in the concentration camp. Corrie ten Boom uh, made it out of the concentration camp and spent the rest of her life telling people about the power of forgiveness. I want to read you a story that Corrie ten Boom tells, I believe in the hiding place. She said it was in a church in Munich, that I saw him a balding heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear It was 1947, two years after the end of World War II, and I had come from Holland to defeat Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions. After a talk in Germany in 1947, people stood up in silence. In silence, they collected their wraps, and in silence, they left the room. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment, I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor. The shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now here he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message for our How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face-to-face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. He said, I was a guard in there. No, he didn't remember me. But since that time, he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, against, again the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I whose sins had every day to be forgiven, and I could not do it. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand-held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives had a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for, victories of, uh, for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. "'I forgive you, brother,' I cried with all my heart. For a long moment we grasped each other's hands, the former guard, the former prisoner. I'd never known God's love so intensely as I did then. And having thus learned to forgive in this hardest of situations— I never again had difficulty in forgiving. I wish I could say it. I wish I could say that merciful and charitable thoughts just naturally flowed from me from then on, but they didn't. If there's one thing I've learned at 80 years of age, it's that I can't store up good feelings and behavior, but only draw them fresh from God each day. Let me read you two more sentences. Maybe I'm glad it's that way. For every time I go to him, he teaches me something else. I recall the time 15 years ago when some Christian friends who I loved and trusted did something which hurt me. I I, I didn't mean to read that paragraph. The ability to let go of the stuff that's hurt you, and I am not here to minimize it. And it is no joke. Like, I feel like trauma and unforgiveness, there's been, like, major mountains in my life of things I had to let go of. But it feels like there's a hill to take monthly, sometimes weekly. And if you're around me because I'm a sinner, and if you let me be your pastor and you come to this church for a long time, there's going to be times where I'm going to offend you and hurt you and need your forgiveness. That is what it means to be the church together. We are in need of the forgiveness of Jesus. We are a forgiven people. And as forgiven people, we are free to forgive. Even the deepest stuff, sometimes stuff that seems small, we need the Holy Spirit of God to help us do it. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you that the debt has been paid in full by Jesus, past, present, and future. And Lord, for every person in here who has received Christ into their life, that is a benefit of the gospel. We have nothing to prove, totally forgiven. For the ones in here who are good people, maybe they believe in God but they've never given their life to Christ. They've never turned from their sin and trusted the death and resurrection of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would help them do that. I pray that they would not uh, hear this and think, oh, I've got to go earn forgiveness from God, or oh, I've got to go forgive these other people. I pray that they would hear the gospel truth that all can be forgiven if we turn from sin and trust you. Give people courage to do that today. And Lord, for the ones who are followers of Christ and and for the ones who aren't, God, we all have people and institutions and organizations and family members sometimes and bosses and co-workers and employees. And we we just live in this broken world where broken people are constantly bumping up against one another. And so God, help us as forgiven people to be forgiving people. Help us be forgiving people. We need your help, God. Even right now, there are people sitting in this room who, if we're honest, would say, "I can't forgive that person." You probably have some of us sitting in this room who would say that person has passed away and been gone for a while. In some scenarios, and God, yet we need to forgive them and let it go. Would you help us to do it? It's a Herculean task. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.